Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. Young, privileged, middle-class kids are joining gangs, not because of poverty, not as a means of survival in bad neighborhoods, but rather just because they want to. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Some parts of Canada have a gang problem, which seems a bit weird because this arguably is one of the best countries in the world to live in. Just look at the stats. Canada ranks at number 16 on a list of the world's richest countries, number nine on a list of the most livable countries in the world, number six on a list of the safest countries in the world, and number two on a list of the most desired countries to move to. Overall, and broadly speaking, Canadians, we have it pretty good. So what is driving young people to choose a life of crime? Young people who, when compared to other countries around the world, have been gifted so much privilege. Surrey, British Columbia has long been the center of a gang turf war over drugs, and it keeps getting worse. A turf war over drugs worth millions. I was making like 25, 30K a month at least. That's selling. About selling drugs, selling crack, heroin, meth. Surrey paying the price in bullets and in blood. The community is out uh, to make it clear. Defeating gangs and gang violence is a, is a key concern for them, that they're concerned about their community. There are a lot of concerns surrounding drugs and gangs here. And, you know, this is an issue that's not just a Surrey issue, it's a regional issue, and in fact, it's something that's right across the country. Over $54 million. That's $54 million announced by the federal and provincial governments to fight guns and gangs over the next three years. Ontario will use this funding to target initiatives that stop and address violent criminal activity before it starts and to provide exit strategies for youth already involved in gun activities. We're coming for you. The violence must end now. Laura Kane and Amy Smart are two journalists with the Canadian Press. They've been working on a brilliant series that examines the gang problem in one of Canada's hotspots for gang violence, Surrey, B.C., I called up Laura to ask her why young, privileged kids are choosing to be gangsters. When I read your article, what really grabbed me is that gangsters in Metro Vancouver 
They don't match that stereotype of a gangster that we've become conditioned to imagine. The stereotype has always been that a gangster is a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, from the ghetto, he's poor, and he's poorly educated. That's right. And before I started working on this series, that was my image of a gangster, too. You think of cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and it's true. The stereotype holds. The young people who are getting involved in gangs there come from impoverished homes. They do. They have a few other economic options. So it's kind of in our story today, we have an expert who says it's a rational response to rational circumstances. It's their only real option for making money in that environment in many ways. But here, the situation, it turns out, is completely different. Many of the young members of gangs here come from middle to even upper class homes. They don't struggle with poverty, and that's not the main driver. So we got really interested in exploring what are the reasons that they're getting into gangs. If it's not poverty, if it's not economic necessity, what is it? And we spoke to a range of experts, police officers, and youth themselves. And broadly, what we heard was the biggest thing was the need for a sense of belonging. So sometimes gangs will target um, those kids who are being bullied, perhaps, and say to them, we can protect you. Just get involved with us. Everyone will think you're cool. Or they see that image and they think, that's what I want. That's how I'm going to be cool. Um, so those are kinds of some of the reasons. Other things could just be you know, a desire for protection or um, just wanting to match that sort of flashy gangster lifestyle that they're seeing all over social media. So it's it is a very different situation in BC, and police officer Kieran McConnell has said that BC's gang landscape is unlike any other in North America. I'm hearing every word that you're saying, and I'm believing it, but I'm also struggling to comprehend why, if a kid wants a sense of belonging, join a sports team. It must be so hard for officers in this town to tackle gang recruitment when the motivation to join a gang doesn't come from a need, like the need to survive fueled by poverty, but rather just a want, a desire. That's so true. And police have really struggled. They've, you know, they are working hard to try to reach out to these kids. I did a ride along with the Surrey RCMP, um, their gang enforcement unit, and they do spend time talking to kids who they've arrested or come into contact with in the street. They also spend time talking with the parents and trying to educate them on what they might be able to do to get their kids out of gangs. Part of the trouble is that once they join, once they make this choice, and by the way, they might have made the choice based on poor information. They might not realize how dangerous it is, or they might tell themselves, oh, well, other people get shot or stabbed, but it's never going to happen to me. So they're making this decision. After that, it can be incredibly hard to get out once you become a dial-a-doper, so basically someone who returns phone calls and or answers phone calls and delivers drugs to locations, it's extremely hard to get out because your gang, the people who are higher up from you, kind of need you to do that work because it's the most dangerous work there is, right? You could be confronting coming across a dangerous addict who might um, rob you or coming across rival groups who say that you're on their turf. So it's extremely dangerous work. They need young kids to do it, and they don't want those kids to leave. So something that could happen is the group, your own gang, will set up a robbery of you so that essentially you've now lost the drugs, you owe a whole bunch of money plus interest to the gang, and that kind of debt never really goes away. So you're stuck. 
that tactic is so manipulative. And it reminds me of how one of the RCMP members that you spoke to questioned whether or not gang is the right word to describe these groups. I thought it was fascinating that they suggested instead referring to them as a drug trafficking group or a gang that operates like a business. That's right. I found that fascinating as well. So there is a lot of debate about whether we can even call the gangs in BC gangs. Uh, because they don't match those traditional markers that, you know, the Crips and Bloods do. They don't wear certain colors necessarily. They don't come from impoverished neighborhoods. They may not even be that organized. Uh, More recently, we've had more and more sort of loosely defined cells um, where allegiances shift very quickly. They're not as strict in terms of hierarchy, and it makes it harder for police to keep a handle on things. And um, in terms of their business uh, motivations. That's totally true. There's a lot of money to be made in the lower mainland from drug trafficking. So they do view themselves more like, as this RCMP officer described it, kind of like a Walmart, um, where there is sort of like the general manager uh, who runs the operation. Then there's a floor manager, a shelf stalker, and a greeter. There are these specific roles and functions that are being done in the business. And then some of the kids who are getting involved in this don't even think of themselves as gangsters, actually. They just think that they're dealing drugs. And some even see it as a career option. I spoke with one young man, or he's not a young man anymore, I should say, but when he was a young man, he, um, he joined a gang because he genuinely thought, I have no other career options. I'm not good at academics. This is the option I'm going to take. So it's much more complicated than I ever realized that it was, and it's not necessarily a straightforward situation that only involves the Red Scorpions, the United Nations, and the Brothers Keepers. There's a lot of other groups, and they're more loosely tied than we realize. That former Surrey gangster that you spoke to, once a kid involved in gangs, an adult now who actually speaks to youth to try to deter them from going into that lifestyle, he said it's not as much of a choice as often the RCMP or the police make it out to be. Yeah, that was really interesting as well, because uh, initially when we learned that all these kids, or many of these kids, I should say, are middle class, we thought, okay, they're making this decision. They're making a choice. It's different from the low-income kids where they're forced into it or they feel they have no other option. The middle class kids must be making a decision. But this guy, Ari Azez, he's now 22, when he was a teenager, he found that every school kind of represented itself in a broader conflict. And in order to be one of the cool kids at school, you had to join the gang. He grew up in Surrey. And so he said there's a choice in the sense that you could be a nerdy kid who stays indoors and plays chess, or you could be one of the cool kids smoking and hanging out on the block. And so it's a choice in a sense, but a lot of teens want to be one of the cool kids. That's understandable. So, but he did also note that, you know, we're not coming from broken families. We often, a lot of us have two parent households. We're not from foster homes. We're not poor. So once they become involved in this lifestyle and the violence and drug trafficking and everything sort of crashes down on their lives, it's sort of even more shocking and hard for parents and families to grapple with. I'm glad that he acknowledged the privilege that he comes from, because, for example, 
your article opens with this great visual of walking up to a beautiful, large, well-kept house with a member of the RCMP gang enforcement unit. And they tell you, you know, this isn't a house that was purchased by the profits of crime. This is a large, beautiful home that is actually owned by the parents of the gangster, and he lives there with them. Exactly. I found that so surprising. Again, it just goes back to the stereotype of gangsters that we have in our minds and how that doesn't fit the bill at all in BC. There's something other than poverty that is driving these kids, and there's a range of reasons. But ultimately, they have other options in life. And I think that that's what's so frustrating for parents and the RCMP is they see these nice homes, these good upbringings, often two-parent households, Um, And they wonder, why couldn't this kid, you know, stick with high school, go to university and find something else to do with his life? And I think answering that question is the key to ending the violence. We need to understand why kids see the gang lifestyle as a better alternative to actually, you know, sort of maybe even embracing their privilege and using the sort of ladder that they have in front of them to become a meaningful member of society, they they do have those options. They're lucky. So why are they choosing the gang lifestyle instead? I think that's the key question that needs to be answered. Laura Kane, you wrote a brilliant article along with Amy Smart, and I encourage anyone listening to seek it out online. It's a fascinating subject and a beautifully written article. Thank you so much, Nikki. I appreciate it. Coming up later in this episode. And then before you know it, you know, you're, you're sitting around with, with a bunch of people and, you know, you're talking about murders and, and who's getting clipped next. And before you know it, it's such a small world. One of those people up on that table is someone very dear to you. And then what do you do? Two former gang members confess why they left their lives of privilege to join a gang. When we talked about this topic on the radio station, host Jody Vance received a call from a guy named Cal. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to call regarding this whole thing. I used to be a dialer doper myself. I was 19 and stupid and uh, got recruited in there because I wanted to get tuition money to get for UBC. And just do, I had two a summer to do it. But I know quite a few guys, and the guys that are still in it till this day are the guys from really rich families. Like my two of my best friends, great, great in school, got straight A students, or had $100,000 cars from their parents, all given, and they sold dope. I, I, I don't get it. And it's, I don't want to say race, but I know it's a certain race that usually does it. And I just, I don't know. What, what the reason is, like, I never got it till this day, Cal, and can, I totally agree with you guys. Can I ask you a question, though, Cal? Does a dial-a-doper equal a gangbanger? Uh, it, it, it depends. It depends. Most of them are affiliated with a group. Like, we had shifts. We were on 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But if you wanted to leave, you could, right? No, no, no. Oh. No, oh. no, yeah, no, you couldn't leave. You had to pay an X amount to get out. So you have to do your due diligence to get out. It wasn't just here. I want to leave. So yeah, you end up like my, I ended up paying about fifteen grand to get out. Whoa! Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Okay. Do you remember a while back on this show, my friend and colleague John McComb interviewed a former gangster. 
Now, we won't use his name, and we've altered his voice by request for his own protection. So let's just start with a little background, sort of the basics. Did you grow up here? Yes. Yeah, I grew up in the lower mainland. Yeah. And childhood, normal? I wouldn't call it exactly normal. Sheltered. You know, I lived a sheltered life, I think, you know. Um, You know, I was into boy scouting, and I wasn't exactly a stellar student, more of a class clown. I'd never known anything about the gang life, you know, until my early teens. You know, I hit the street pretty young. It began, you know, pretty, pretty small potatoes, thefts, little theft unders, things of that nature. Quickly snowballed into hanging out with the wrong crowd and drug dealing. And That's a pretty quick arc from being a Boy Scout to in your early teens, things starting to come off the rails a bit. So what were you thinking about? What was, what was going through your mind as you were making these choices? I think I, I was really confused, you know. Um, I'd gone through great trauma right around that time. I'd found out that my sister had been being sexually abused for, you know, greater than 10 years or something like that without anybody knowing about it. Wow. And when I found that out, right, I was just so broken, right? Yeah. And I, I, I ran and uh, got, you know, involved with the wrong crowd. And, you know, it all just started happening really quick. Before you know it, when you're selling drugs, then I'd become addicted to drugs. That was something that I battled with for a long time. And that's also something that escalated very quickly. From weed to heroin, like, that's a pretty big jump, right? You're only a 14-year-old kid. No one should be giving you that stuff. And, uh, you know, that was life for me every day, right? And I became really addicted. And in order to feed those habits, crime just went through the roof. That's all it was. It was just stealing everything. Now it's stealing cars and, you know, stealing systems out of cars and the wheels off of cars and just stealing everything that wasn't tied down, right? And it was... You know, it was all being sold for drugs to to uh, supply your habit. In and out of jail now. In and out of jail three or four times. You know, you go to jail for a year for a high-speed chase. You get back out and it's right back to the drugs and right back to the gangs and right back to all the, the negative things in my life. And you're what, 14, 15? 15, 16, 18. Then you start going to adult jail. And you start getting locked up for longer sentences. And I ended up in the pen when I was 19. Federal? In the federal penitentiary when I was 19, right? Now now you're with killers and rapists and just bad people surrounding you. And before you know it, you start to fit in. You become institutionalized and that's just normal to you. Because you have to, right? In order to survive, right? Yeah. It's, you, you just, you, you take on that mentality. That chicken coop mentality, that, you know, that drug subculture mentality, that gangster mentality. Yeah. That disregard for for everything that's right and, you know, just chaos, pure chaos is all it was. And, uh, you know, you, you get out of the pen now and you're all big and, you know, you got the tattoos and the big muscles and, you, you know, you're that guy that everybody remembered. Oh, there's that, you know, that crazy guy, right? And then you start falling in with even worse crowds. And uh, people start wanting you with them. Because, you know, you're, you're a, uh, a bad guy, a, a guy with a little bit of 
Um, Street cred? Exactly. People are scared of your name. And then before you know it, you know, you're, you're sitting around with, with a bunch of people and, you know, you're talking about murders and, and who's getting clipped next. And before you know it, it's such a small world. One of those people up on that table is someone very dear to you. And then what do you do? You know, when it's, when it's your friends that start killing your friends, you know, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not rival gangs. You don't have to worry about the rival gangs or the cops. John, you don't have to worry about those guys. You have to worry about the guy sitting right beside you. Your own damn friend. And, and that, that's what really broke my heart. You know? Is you, you think it's about brotherhood and, you know, solidarity. And it's about everything but that, you know? Yeah. It's about treachery. And I just got really sick of, of, of seeing friends killing friends, you know, and I, I just had to get away from it all, you know? And, uh, so I just cut ties with them. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, you can't just cut ties. To me, I, I, I find that's just an excuse for some people. I, I, I think if you want in your heart to make the right choices and, and to leave your gang and, and to go and live a good life, get a job, go to school, have some kids, raise a beautiful family, you know? If you want to do those things, you, you better not be doing it while you think you're a gang member because someone's going to come and take everything that you love away from you one day. And it's, it's, it's only going to take a second too, you know? It, all, one red light, you're at a red light, that's all it takes. In 2018, 37% of all the homicides in British Columbia were linked or suspected to be linked to gangs and organized crime. This Is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and myself, Nikki Reitmeyer, with a big special thanks to Amy Smart and Laura Kane for their brilliant reporting. It's a national radio show and podcast. You can download, subscribe, or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Also, give us a rating and a review, and you can send us an email as well. This is why at CuriousCast.ca. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. 